Welcome. I'm Josh, Buddhist pastor. And just a couple announcements. Our usual gathering time, which is the first Tuesday of the month at uh, Grand Street Healing. So that'll be January 2nd at 7 p.m. And um, we'll have to, as per the request of the center, we're going to be having a just a sign up because we've been getting too many people for their space, which only fits about, uh, I guess, like 45. We've been getting like 60 and 70 people on our gathering. So, um, yeah, we'll be putting up a sign-in form uh, next week, dharmapunksnyc.com. So if you are in the mood just uh, to stop by, uh, you can sign up there. And everything is, of course, done by donation. Everything I do entirely as a Buddhist pastor supported by donation. So Venmo, Dharma Punks with an XNYC if you'd like to support my work. Um, if you're on the website, you can also find the PayPal link and the Patreon link if you would like to support my work that way. So I'm grateful for any generosity that is available. But either way, just having you here is a wonderful uh, joy. So enough with... All that. And now on to tonight's topic. I thought tonight I'd give a talk on balancing our need for joy and positive emotions with also the importance of being accountable or responsible to issues going on in our life and the world, important events. And that balance can be very difficult to find. And I'll talk about some tools that have helped me. I'm not claiming that any of them will be the right tools for you, but um, hopefully something in tonight's talk will be of interest. Then we'll have a meditation. Then we'll have time for questions or anything you'd like to have explicated further. In the 1960s, heralded the arrival of positive psychology, famous figures like Martin Seligman, Albert Bandura, Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, Abraham Maslow, Robert Evans. And then over time, very exciting new figures, some of my favorites, Barbara Fredrickson, Jonathan Hayes, Sanja Lubomirsky, can never pronounce her name, um, arrived. And uh, the the basic gist was that uh, they noted that psychology and counseling over its development was overly focused on our pathologies, i.e. the causes of our psychological disorders, rather than noting our innate capabilities that allow us to flourish and feel meaningfully engaged and fulfilled in our life. Capacities for, as a social species with frontal lobes, where we have the capacity for kindness and gratitude and awe and creativity. We can express our internal states to others that so we can bond in deeper, more uh, 
create stronger affiliations. But the question is, you know, why do we have positive emotions? They were immediately confronted by, why do we have joy, love, gratitude, pride? The survival implications of our negative emotions are clear. Our fight-flight impulses that create anger, fear, frustration, uh, mobilize us to survive threats. And on the other hand, our impulses to fawn, shut down, cower, are impulses that immobilize us, uh, and that also can have survival positive implications when we're overmatched, becoming meek and small, playing dead, also has its survival implications. But what is the purpose of positive emotions? Why did we evolve to have such a wide array of them? Well, Fredrickson, Barbara Fredrickson, I think, came up with the most uh, profound answer to that uh, question. And in fact, that's her solution is highly accepted in the world of clinical psychology. It's called the broaden and build uh, theory, which is that positive emotions um, do two things. One, of course, they broaden our behaviors so that we can develop flexible, collaborative ways to think and act. And that alone had vastly important survival implications. We connect for safety in numbers and any uh, attributes such as positive emotions that switch us from the withdrawal impulses of negative emotions to the approach impulses that allow us to connect with others and bond and build tribes and uh, together explore our environments um, these um this these impulses clearly had a great advantage in fact probably the single greatest survival advantage of our species is our ability to connect and our ability to connect is largely based on the ability to express joy and uh acknowledgement and appreciation to others but it's not just that uh, not just our ability to connect with others, positive emotions are vital for staying alive. You see, um, as Fredrickson and many others pointed out, um, they switch us out of what's called the sympathetic nervous system, which is responsible for chronic stress, uh, hypervigilance, staying fully alert and engaged, but not allowing us to relax and settle and digest and sleep. So what allows us to switch from these heightened alert survival states to these relaxed, peaceful, uh, healthy states? Well, positive emotions. They activate your left hemisphere, um, and so uh, without positive emotions, we'd be unmotivated to engage with our environments and our nervous systems would be stuck constantly in sympathetic arousal, which is over time incredibly damaging to the body. It's associated with, um, uh, uh, what is it, diabetes, 
cancer, compromised immune system, gastrointestinal disorders, and so forth. So the ability to experience uh, positive emotions is vital for our well-being. Now, I should note that when I'm talking about positive emotions, I'm not talking about sensory pleasures that don't do either of the above. Sensory pleasures feel really good, and they produce short-term dopamine rewards. For example, shopping, <laughs> eating, TV watching, spending, you know, people get engaged on social media or, or on dating apps. But these pleasures don't elicit the, um, the neural rewards, the benefits of connecting and regulating our nervous system. In fact, they're also excitatory. They keep us in this um, highly uh, vigilant states. Nobody, and you, we can tell that these, these short-term pleasures don't elicit any sense of pride and sense of self-worth. Very few people I know uh, r run around, uh, or, uh, screaming that they just, how proud they were that they spent six hours on hinge the previous night swiping over hundreds of images of people or how they spent four hours on, uh, Amazon. These are not things that elicit pride or they don't regulate our nervous system and they don't allow us to connect with others. Positive emotions arise from impulses, one, to connect with loved ones, to also finish things that are expressive, like when people finish a painting or they do a walk in nature or they achieve a health goals or they meditate or they spend time practicing gratitude by taking in the positive or acts of kindness. These are the kind of uh, what the positive psychologist showed are the activities that regulate our nervous system that allow us to meaningfully connect with others and, and create a sense of self-worth. So why aren't we doing it all the time? Why aren't we, you know, I mean, why don't we um, focus as much time as we need to practice um, gratitude, connecting with loved ones, finishing painting, walking in nature? Why do we spend so much time fixated on the bad at the expense of taking in the good, even though taking in the good is vital for our well-being. Well, focusing on the good can be edged or overwhelmed by what's called our negativity bias, an ingrained tendency in our brains to focus and dwell on negative events and negative stimuli rather than positive. You see, our evolutionary ancestors um, probably did survive in the short term by focusing on threats and things that could go wrong rather than any kind of gratitude practice or spending time telling their loved ones how much they care about them. Negativity has been shown to be a magnet for attention and memory formation. It only takes about a half a second for a negative event to wire durably uh, resilient neural connections involving, you know, generally your amygdala and your right temporal lobe. 
But positive experiences take a lot longer. We really have to savor a positive event for 15, 20. I don't remember the exact uh, the suggested amount for it to form a neurally resilient set of connections. But it takes a lot longer. Studies show we spend longer time looking at images of negative facial expressions than images of people sm uh, smiling. Uh, we'll remember negative, uh, if you show people uh, five photo photographs of five different people frowning, photographs of five different people smiling, and photographs of five different people with neutral experiences, and you wait a couple of weeks, they'll remember every one of the five negative facial expression faces in the future. They won't remember, they'll remember one of the five positive, you know, smiling faces, and they won't remember any of the neutral expressions. Putting it another way, given an array of good or bad adjectives about a stranger, study shows we always give greater emotional weight to bad descriptors when we form an impression. So if somebody says to you, hey, I, I just met the neighbor, and you say, oh, what were they like? And you say, well, they were um they were very uh friendly but they also seemed to be playing their uh car radio loud or they they also seemed to be in a hurry or whatever the negative uh the negative uh information will be given far more weight in our minds than the positive. We dwell on the unpleasant more than we dwell on pleasant events. And classically, bad news has been shown to sell more newspapers, get more clicks, uh, get more TV views than good news. In fact, uh, there was, I remember at, in 2020, the actor John Krasinski made a some good news web series. I don't know if you remember it, even though it was only three years ago, it feels like a lifetime. But, uh, and even though a lot of people were, you know, gave it alkalods and, and very, and some positive reviews, it managed nine episodes before basically the energy behind it <laughs> petered away. Well, meanwhile, every day, if you go into any, you know, bank or any place where TV's on, it'll be on a news site showing bad news in the world. Today, there's lots of negative events that can hijack our attention towards doom scrolling. There's absolutely horrific military actions going on right now that are killing innocent civilians women and children. There's unambiguously vile authoritarian nations invading weaker nations. In six years from now, we reach a line in the sand where the coral reefs will begin to die off. Uh, we'll have massive global crop failures, forced migration in the hundreds of millions. And we could very well reelect a neo-Nazi in 2024. So it's not like we're in a shortage of uh, things to dwell and doom scroll over. And in fact, 
For many of us, the stressors and the bad news is closer to home, family dramas involving addiction or mental health disorders uh, can override our felt permission to relax, to dwell on the good in our lives, to experience gratitude, to take care of ourselves, to, you know, uh, enjoy. So it can take a lot of spiritual effort to focus on the good. And yet, the Buddha's middle path emphasizes finding a healthy balance in life is crucial to the spiritual journey in life. And this is what we could call, in today's clinical language, switching from either-or thinking to both-and thinking, or from dichotomous to dialectical, if you're more clinical. Um, in other words... We tend to gravitate towards extremes, flipping from one opposite to another, as if there's only way one way to play the game of life and we have to choose. So we don't get to balance uh, gratitude with awareness of world events. We have to either adapt one extreme or the other. So, for example, I'll give you a couple examples. Um People can bounce back and forth between staying at a job they hate or suddenly quitting it and staying at the job they they don't like obviously is unpleasant, but quitting brings up the fear of how will I find another job? How will I pay the rent? What am I going to do for food? So those are two extremes. Another set of extremes is um, some people spend entire relationships demanding that their partners change other people just uh either resign themselves entirely that nothing will change or or just immediately run away and quit a relationship at the sign of any difficulty some people rely on social media when they're lonely uh, and will be on it for hours, just on their phones addictively for four or five hours on Instagram and, uh, I don't know, Bumble or whatever. Or, and then they'll spend time going cold turkey where they won't use the, you know, any social media at all, any dating apps, anything on the internet. So they jump from one extreme to another. Couples that are unhealthy, unhealthy couple dynamics, one person will, uh, they'll ambush each other whenever they're unhappy with something. Some people will avoid un, uh, unpleasant topics altogether. Neither of those work. Those two strategies uh, have been shown to lead to disastrous outcomes in John Gottman's work. The Buddha himself in his life went from one extreme of indulging in comfort. He grew up in a very wealthy environment to then jumping to the other extreme of deprivation in the forest, not eating, only practicing, not enjoying uh, any food or any company with others. So the solution, of course, is to find a way to transcend these uh extremes these either ors and to go to both and 
where we accept uh, that we can have what seems to be incompatible needs or truths and taking them both into account. So, for example, I'll give you example the solutions to those hypotheticals I just ra- raised. If somebody's bouncing for back and forth between changing between quitting their job that they don't like or staying in it, the the middle path is to either go meet with their boss and change the role, set boundaries or make a decision in their head that they're going to start looking for new work and that they're going to leave as soon as they find a job that's uh that brings them a greater sense of uh enjoyment, fulfillment and so forth, but they won't they're not going to just stay in it and suffer nor are they just going to prematurely quit and not have another job. Uh, another example um uh uh, couples that um, ambush each other whenever they have uh, any frustration or thing they're disappointed about in the relationship or other couples avoid any difficult conversations whatsoever. Gottman's research showed that couples who set aside a time each week where they would meet and make requests of each other rather than demands, and would also express in that time gratitude for uh, things the other about the uh, their their partner uh, met their needs and were healthy relationships. The Buddha, when he bounced between indulging in comfort and depriving himself of food, uh, found the solution in what he called the requisites. He said we should all eat and have enough clothing and enough shelter uh, that's just necessary for being healthy. Not more than what we need, but not less than what we need that causes so much stress that we can't experience peace of mind. So it's about balance and transcending the extremes. So this brings us to a way forward. Um, avoiding political issues um, or becoming, on the other hand, consumed by painful socio-political drama- dramas to the extent that we experience uh, in our the times when we're not that we have very little time to relax, enjoy ourselves, feel peaceful, feel a sense of well-being. Neither of those are the way forward. If we try to avoid the painful events of the world, we know from Dan Wegner's ironic process that whenever we suppress some an idea or an issue, the thoughts become actually more persistent. We can only suppress things temporarily, but over time, the reminders in the world around us produce preoccupation with the suppressed content. So paradoxically, we wind up thinking more and more and more about the issues in the world that we've been trying to avoid. Yet at the same time, there are studies like ignorance by choice that show that given the chance to learn about how our actions negatively affect the planet or other people's lives, over 40% choose not to know. 
so that they can have an excuse to live selfishly. But there was a companion set of studies, uh, 2007 Ignorance is Not Bliss, that showed an enormous amount of emotional discomfort associated with being ignorant of social issues, including nagging thought, regret, and also a, a loss of self-worth associated when, you know, obviously you're around people that are conversant and are taking actions about terrible events in the world. If we're not doing anything, then we start to have a, our sense of agency and self-worth begins to suffer. Um they and once again the american psychological society warns against either extreme it warns that if we follow news too much we wind up with what's called headline stress disorder and you won't you don't want to have headline stress disorder because it's like if we follow too much the climate change wars and justice if we allow it to consume too much attention then we're more likely to experience anhedonia, loss of joy, depression, and PTSD uh, symptoms. But on the other hand, becoming fixated and troubled by events prevents us from meaningfully connecting with others, diminishing our sense of agency and burnout. So what is that balance? Well, I'll tell you what I've done in my life that's been helpful. Um I personally set aside time each day to, in a very limited window, generally never more than about a half an hour to 40 minutes in the morning, I'll check out the news. And I won't check out news on a site that is meant to inflame, but just uh, are sites that allow me to uh, read about events in a way that doesn't, uh, that allows me to be informed, but not activated, that doesn't encourage obsessive, um, fixation. So for me, I'll, I literally go to sites like The Guardian and the BBC because these are not, if it bleeds, it leads sites. They tend to be, uh, they tend to make their headlines far less, uh, you know, threatening and, but they create a familiarity with what's happening in the world. There's other sites. Everybody will have their own Reuters, the AP press. Uh, some, for some people, it's their own favorite, um, newspapers or whatever, but carving out a certain amount of time and then making it a spiritual practice to then, uh, spend, and that to devote the rest of one's day to task positive activities. Now, for me, I also feel a very strong need to take some kind of positive action towards uh, world events. And so I, after I read, if there's something that evokes a, <clears throat> a sense of of moral outrage or concern, I'll very often take a very specific act towards it. Um, there are very, for me, very, uh, causes that I deeply believe in. They all happen due to my bent to be very progressive causes that I, um, 
when I have any money, I'll donate to. When I have any time, I'll do what they request on their website. Um, I've been a longtime supporter of Doctors Without Borders, Amnesty International, uh, and so forth. There's also Jewish Voices for Peace. So, but that's for me. You know, your own uh, emotional makeup might have your own uh, specific uh, causes that you can spend a little bit of time, uh, maybe once a week, taking a positive action. But then it's important after we've taken in the news and we've made whatever positive action to make it part of our spiritual practice, what the Buddha called right effort, to then put down the concerns of the world, to not carry them with us, to not cling to them, as the Buddha said, He said that one of the four things we cling to are our views and opinions about the world, and that causes suffering. So after reading, after devoting some attention, after taking an action, then I focus on whatever activities I have to do to where I show up for others in counseling, whether I do, um, I go to the gym, or whether I go out and find some food to eat, um, or whether I sit and poorly play the saxophone or, you know, noodle on the piano. Um, I then will do those activities. I always try to do the more unpleasant or difficult issues first in my day, address them so that I can then make it a mental discipline, knowing that I've taken a beneficial act and then I'm going to let it go. So for example, um, there was a time back uh, before I became a f- uh, basically a full-time Buddhist pastor, and I still had to get work as a graphic designer, art director. And looking for work was always very, very stressful for me. <laughs> it was never pleasant. So, r- But many people, when they're out of work, they'll spend a lot of time either uh distracting themselves by focusing on uh things like dating apps or doom scrolling or social media or because they don't want to deal with the looking for work part or on the other hand they might try to make up for that and spend entire days just I'm today I'm going to look for a job and neither of those extremes are beneficial What I did is I would wake up and after I had my coffee, I would take one action each day towards looking for a job. I respond to one, uh, notice I'd, um, I would, uh, um, I would, uh, call up one headhunter, whatever. And then I'd let it go. I wouldn't think any more about it because I'd taken the action. I'd already addressed the issue. And it was now my time to do whatever. And I found that doing that one action a day and getting getting it done early allowed me to not stress out or become uh, overly gloomy when I was looking for work. Likewise, another example um back in 2015 i signed a book contract with a large publisher to write a book and it was for a 260 page book and the moment i started 
I realized, what the hell have I done? I've never written anything longer than eight pages in my entire life. How could I have signed this book contract to write a 260-page book? So I knew if I just allowed the extreme part of my brain to take over and I was just going to sit there and force myself to write, that nothing good would come of that. But if I allowed myself to dawdle uh, and just put it off until what seemed like a good idea came up, then I would just waste an enormous amount of time. So instead, I decided each day I'm going to write two pages no matter how bad, I'm not going to criticize it. I'm not going to judge it. I'm just going to write two pages and then I'm going to let it go. And some days I would even write three. Some days I wrote two really terrible pages. Most of the time I wrote two really terrible pages, but I never evaluated it. I just would write it and then let it go and then go out. Uh, or sometimes I'd indulge and look at my favorite uh, website for a while. And then I would do the counseling work I had to do. And then I would do the fun things like going to the gym or meditating or listening to music or uh, playing the piano, whatever it was I would do. And so doing it this way, just getting over the obligation and getting it done with, I wound up writing the whole damn book in one fourth of the amount of time that they had alleviated because every day I took the action, then let it go. So, if we're looking for balance in our life, I find it very important to follow that uh, tool that clinical psychologists have shown, which is setting aside a time to do something, limiting it to just that time, associating that time with reward if we need. So if it's like an unpleasant issue we have to address, then the, after you spend the time addressing it, reward yourself with something that you enjoy, and then spend the rest of your day with the discipline of, I'm not going to think about that issue for the rest of the day at all. So if it's a health concern, deal with it first thing in the morning, <laughs> address it, and then, or if it's dealing with any other issue, deal with it Give yourself a little reward like a snack that you like or go out and spend an hour walking around or whatever it takes and then make it the discipline to not think about that issue again. So over time, we're developing a kind of meditation in life itself where we deal with issues and during the time we deal with it, we allow ourselves to think about those issues. But outside of that, every time our minds go back to the stressful, like uh, the wars, uh, the uh, events going on in Gaza, all that. Every time we go to those places, after we take the action, we but after that, we bring our attention back to things that we can do. So we're neither, on the one hand, avoiding important issues, nor are we dwelling. We're finding that balance. There's a lot of um, studies that show that finding balance is also associated with actively switching viewpoints. We tend to be cognitively frugal, and we tend to only take one viewpoint uh, because that minimizes mental effort. Studies show that uh, not having views that are so inflexible 
so rigid that we can't ad- adapt and understand other people's points of view is a tool or an attribute associated with cognitive flexibility that allows us to get out of either or thinking and into what's called both and thinking. And in the Buddha's Dharma, we see the need to do both. On the one hand, acknowledging the bad things in life, seeing what's called dukkha, is foundational in the practice. It's called the first noble truth, acknowledging the, the, the suffering in life, acknowledging the, uh, where there's, uh, disorders, where there's trouble in our own life, acknowledging them, taking an action. But the Buddha taught that if we can never experience joy while there's suffering in the world, we'll never experience any peace. So uh, the, this seeing dukkha and addressing it with compassion or some kind of action is also balanced by what's called sukha vedana, which is practicing gratitude, appreciation, uh, connecting with friends, kalyanamita, um, reminding of times that we've acted skillfully, sila nusati, reflecting on our generosity and the generosity of other people, kaga nusati. So what we're going to do in our practice is these very tools. We're going to acknowledge the difficulty and the suffering, but then we're also going to practice balancing it with savoring the good. So that's it. That's tonight's talk. I hope something in there was worth reflecting on some way. If not, I'll try to do better next Tuesday. So find a really comfortable seated position. Closing the eyes, and if you need to yawn or... Have a nice full exhalation, a sigh. All of those activate the parasympathetic nervous system and allows us to down-regulate, allows us to relax. And if you want, take a moment and just stiffen your torso, you know, tighten the belly, lift the shoulders up, squinch the muscles in the face, tight, 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 and then relax. Let go, let your shoulders drop and let your belly go soft and pull your arms slightly behind your torso so you open up room for the chest and See if you can find a comfortable, warm facial expression. And so for tonight, there's a bunch of different themes we can reside 
on topics, issues, not topics or issues, I should say, meditation themes. So for example, if you want, you can bring your attention into your body and find the sensation of your breath wherever your body lets you know, however your body lets you know that you're breathing in and what associate what sensations are associated with breathing out And to stay with the breath, you can count the breath. I like the strategy of thinking one as you breathe in, two as you breathe out, three with the next inhalation, four with the next exhalation, five with the next inhalation, and then start counting down. So four with the exhale, three with the inhale, etc. So we're counting from one to five and back down with odd numbers always on the in-breath. Even numbers always on the out. But you can also work with other themes You could simply dwell, listen to the sounds arising and passing around you without adding any images to represent what's creating the sounds, just allowing the sounds to arise and pass without holding, thinking about, dwelling on. And working with sounds is a good way to let go. Part of tonight's practice of balance means letting go of dealing with stressors and then letting go. And working with sounds or just acknowledging body sensations arising and passing. Any meditation practice that allows us to let go and constantly bring attention to what's present is such a powerful practice for developing the skill of letting go.
So the practice is just keep bringing your attention back to whatever sensation, sound, breathing. If you like, you can also work with a chant in your mind, just repeating a phrase, may I be happy, peaceful, free of stress and suffering. Or it could be sustaining a very simple image in your mind, a candle, a simple shape and color. The Buddha talked about animita practices, so visualize a blue circle slowly expanding until it consumes the entirety of your awareness, or a yellow circle, etc. But what's key to finding balance in life and allowing us to put aside catastrophizing thoughts or fixations is when we practice again and again in our meditation just gently letting go of whatever has pulled us away from our meditation theme, whatever thought, memory, or plan has crept in and yanked attention away from the breath or sounds or our phrase we're repeating. And just bring your attention back and feel good about that. It's not a sign of doing anything wrong or not being good at meditation. It's simply every time you drift off and realize it and bring your attention back, you're wiring the capacity into your brain to let go and bring attention back to that which is soothing, restorative, strengthening.
So if you'd like, you can stay with that practice, choosing a meditation theme. And every time a thought or a distraction, a plan, a memory intrudes and hijacks your attention away, just practice bringing your attention back, feeling good about wiring in that skill of letting go, putting down, returning to a positive theme. If you'd like to do tonight's practice, bring to mind some issue in the world or in your family or in your life or in your immediate environment that is difficult, unpleasant. Just hold it in mind and acknowledge without any denial that this issue is there. That this issue deserves some kind of skillful response. Don't get lost in the story about it. Just acknowledge. Could be events in the world. Some challenging issue we have to deal in our personal life or in our relationship. Just acknowledge it and then ask ourselves, what would be one meaningful but not huge gesture. It could be one meaningful but achievable small act I could take that would in some way be some contribution to a solution or at least acknowledging my concern. It's important that this meaningful act not be too large. When we think in too big a step, then we simply postpone taking actions. So what would be a small step that I could take even if it doesn't seem particularly meaningful in the grand scheme of things, taking an action allows us to meet our most basic pro-tribal moral demands. So what action could we take that we haven't taken already?
And then just setting the intention to fulfill that act. Just visualize yourself doing it or just saying, I acknowledge, I will take this commitment, undertake it. And then bring your attention to taking in the good. Visualizing people in your life you appreciate. Friends. People you admire. Figures in the world who are exemplary. Just visualize their faces, looking at you, acknowledging you. Trying to cultivate a state of ease, warmth in the heart center. And then bring to mind times we've acted morally, beneficially towards others, times we've been, a time we've been helpful. Visualize someone that we've showed a kindness towards. And then see if you can just feel any sense of ease or warmth in your heart center or in your belly. Bring to mind an activity that we feel good doing. It could be a creative activity, playing an instrument, cooking, writing, drawing, gardening, sewing, knitting, working with wood, whatever. Finally, visualize a place or an activity that we associate with ease, peace.
peacefulness, what the Buddha called Santinusati, reflecting on experiences of peace. Could be a beach, cottage in the woods, a trail, a neighborhood, a park, a river. a person is dwelling in reflections that activate positive emotions. Having addressed the difficult issue, we then dwell in the good. So that's tonight's meditation and reflection. I hope that in some way it is uh, beneficial.